Welcome to this presentation of First Baptist Church Logue. We're glad to have you joining us today. Our mission at FBC Logue is to bring glory to God by being disciple makers. For that purpose, we present the following resource that it may be a blessing. And as you're finding your place, Ruth is a great book. I know you think that I say that every time we start a new series, and it's probably true, but that's because it's true. Uh, it is a great story. There are memorable characters. Uh, there is conflict and resolution. There is suspense. There's a, a little bit of romance. Everything uh, that you would think would go into a good story. But while it's well known for being a great story, what is often underappreciated about Ruth is how critical it is for the development of the rest of the Old Testament, and, and for the rest of the, the New Testament, for that matter. For, for a, a short story of only four chapters, uh, what happens in this story is crucially important for the unfolding of God's ultimate plans throughout all of human history. And so among other things, I hope that we will see and appreciate that as we make our way through the story over this next month. And so without further ado, let's get started this morning as we begin the book of Ruth. We're in Ruth chapter 1, and we will begin in verse 1. It says, In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife Naomi. The names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. So as we begin the story, the first thing we are told is that it is taking place during the time when the judges ruled, which is recorded in the book just before Ruth. And so the setting is, is somewhere in the 300-year period of time between 1375 and 1050 B.C., after the Lord has delivered his people out of slavery in Egypt and brought them into the promised land. And so, at this point, the, the nation of Israel is spread out across the land, according to their tribes, and there is no longer a central leader of the people after Joshua has died. And the book of Judges tells us that without a central leader, every person did what was right in their own eyes. So despite the fact that God had given the people his law, everybody just did whatever they wanted to do. This time period was one of the darkest seasons, perhaps the darkest season in, in all of the Old Testament. It was characterized by chaos and anarchy. And during this time, the Israelites would turn away from the Lord, and they would engage in, in idolatry and any number of forms of unrepentant sin. And so eventually the Lord would judge his people, either by sending a famine or by allowing them to be conquered by another people group. And then under that judgment, the Israelites would eventually come back to their senses, and they would repent of their sin, and they would call out to the Lord for deliverance. And so the Lord would raise up someone, a, a judge, who would deliver the people and then serve as a, a temporary leader. But then over time, the Israelites would fall back away from the Lord, and they would begin to rebel against him. And so the Lord would judge them again until they repented, and then he would deliver them once again. And this cycle happened over and over and over again. And so as we look at the middle of verse 1 and see that the story 
is set at a time when there was a famine in the land. That indicates to us that this is a time, once again, where God's judgment was against the people because of their unrepentant sin. Now, during this time, there's a man in the land of Judah named Elimelech, who has a wife named Naomi and two sons, uh, one whose name is Malon, the other is Kilion. And as they're introduced, you'll notice that twice in these opening verses, the author identifies them as being uh, from Bethlehem, and he, he calls them Ephrathites. And that, that repetition serves to make a point about the situation at hand. You see, the, the word Bethlehem is a compound word that means house of bread. And, and the word Ephrathah, which is the, the, what the area was originally named, means fruitful. And the original settlers of the area named it Bethlehem Ephrathah for good reason. It was smack dab in one of the most fertile areas of the entire world. There was tons of grain, all kinds of fruit. And so if you ever needed to find food in the ancient world, you could always go to Bethlehem. But not now. Now the house of bread is empty under the judgment of God. And there aren't even any crumbs lying around. It is a total famine, with the people living there facing eventual starvation. Now, at the end of verse 1, we see that in response to the famine, Elimelech decides to take his family and head southeast into the land of Moab. As you can see on our map, the land of Moab is is just over a 60-mile journey southeast of, of Bethlehem, just on the other side of the Dead Sea. And while this move might make sense from a physical perspective, spiritually speaking, it is suspect at best. You see, Israel is the promised land. This was the place that God had established to bless his people and to make his presence known. But rather than staying and trusting in the Lord to provide, Elimelech leads his family away from the promised land. Not only does he lead them away from the promised land, he leads them into the territory of Moab. Now, now the Moabites literally did not start well. If you don't already know about the Moabites, you can read about them at the end of Genesis 19. They did not start well, and they never really got right at any point after that. The the Old Testament never speaks favorably about the Moabites. They, They frequently function as enemies of God's people, And at one point, there was even a 10-generation ban from any of the Moabites being allowed among God's people. And so of all the places you could go, if you're going to leave the promised land, which you probably shouldn't, Moab would not be your best choice. And so the author doesn't explicitly condemn this move, but anybody reading this story in the ancient world would raise their eyebrows about this little detail. So a questionable decision in a desperate situation makes for an ominous beginning to our story. And unfortunately, the ominous turns into the tragic as we pick up again beginning in verse 3. Looking at verse 3, we read, But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other Ruth. They lived there about ten years, And both Malon and Kilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. And so the Elimelech clan relocates to Moab, 
But in verse 3, we see that after a certain period of time, Elimelech dies. And so Naomi is left with only her two sons to support her. And so Malon and Kilion come of age, and they get married to a couple of Moabite women, one of which is named Orpah, and the other is named Ruth. And if moving to Moab was a questionable decision, then bringing Moabites into the family is even worse. This move just reeks of spiritual compromise and further unfaithfulness to the Lord. Nevertheless, things continue to move along over the next ten years until eventually even Malon and Kilion die as well. And now Naomi finds herself with no husband and no sons to support her in in a a patriarchal society of the ancient world where, where that would mean she was utterly destitute. Not only that, but in the ten years her sons were married, no children seemed to have been born in order to perpetuate the family name. And so she is in a foreign land, she has lost her family, and she has nobody to provide for her. It it literally could not get any worse for a woman in that day and time. Naomi's life has literally fallen apart. She has lost everything. And so she probably asked, what am I supposed to do now? Well, as we move into verse 6, we'll find out what happens next. And so look again, beginning in verse 6. It says, Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on their way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go! Return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you, as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters, go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. So sometime later on, Naomi hears through the grapevine that the Lord has finally delivered his people back in Israel and has provided them with food. And with that knowledge, Naomi makes a decision to return home to Bethlehem. So she loads up along with Orpah and Ruth, and they begin the journey back to Bethlehem together. 
But then in verse 8, we see that somewhere along the way, Naomi stops. And she begins to try to persuade uh, Orpah and Ruth to go back to Moab and not go on with her. And, And her thought process is that there's no reason for them to leave everything that they've ever known just to go back to Bethlehem with her. And if they stay in Moab, then they have an opportunity to make a fresh start in life. They can remarry. Maybe they can have children. They can have a happy life. And so she gives them her blessing. And then she kisses them, which was a a sign of releasing them from their commitment to her as their mother-in-law. And in the the emotion of the moment, they all break down and they weep together. And it's, it's obvious that they care deeply about each other. And in fact, we see that that Orpah and Ruth love Naomi so much that they initially refuse to leave her. They insist, we will go with you back to your people. They've been through so much together, and they aren't going to leave her now. But Naomi is serious about this, and she doubles down in verse 11. She is convinced that there is no future for Orpah or for Ruth with her in Bethlehem. They don't have husbands to provide for them. And as she points out, she isn't going to have any more children for them to marry instead. If that sounds kind of weird to you, then then it will be helpful to understand the the ancient Jewish practice of what was called Leverite marriage. If if a man died without without having children, then one of his brothers or or the next nearest male relative uh, would take his wife and have children that would be recognized as his children in order to continue the family lineage and in order to keep the property uh, in in the family clan. And so uh, this is what Naomi is referring to, uh, but, but this isn't going to happen. As she points out, it would take years, even if she could have kids, which she can't, but even if she could, even if she could conceive that very day, it would take years for them to come of age. And at that point, Orpah and Ruth would probably be past the time of bearing children anyway. So Naomi sees that she has nothing to offer them but a share in her poverty. But back in Moab, they have the prospect of a semi-normal life. Again, they could remarry and, and, and at least make the best of it. Naomi loves them, and as much as it would hurt to lose them, She thinks that it is in their best interest to go back to Moab. And so she she pleads with them to turn back. And we see that at the end of verse 14, Orpah finally kisses Naomi back, which is a a sign of accepting her release from her commitment. And so Orpah goes back to Moab. But Ruth clings to Naomi. And and that word cling is a strong word that, that actually implies, in many cases, a transfer of membership from one group into something new. It's actually the the same word that God uses to describe marriage in Genesis chapter 2, where he says a a man will leave his father and mother and will cling to his wife. And so in in clinging, we're talking about a a deep commitment uh, that is leaving one thing and coming into something new. And in this case, uh, we see that Ruth is prepared to leave her people in order to join Naomi among her people. But Naomi is still not having it. She absolutely refuses. In her mind, it makes no sense for Ruth to throw her life away simply out of concern for her. And so she tells her to go back to her own home and start over. 
But in verses 16 and 17, Ruth gives one of the most heartfelt expressions of love and commitment of all time. She says, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And so we see that Ruth has made up her mind, and she is not going to leave Naomi. Again, we see her determination not just to live with Naomi, but to adopt her life as her own, her home her people, and her God. And to top it all off, she takes an oath of faithfulness to Naomi in the name of the Lord. She says, May the Lord, the God of Israel, punish me severely if anything but death separates me from you. Now this is incredibly significant because more than her loyalty to, her loyalty to Naomi, Ruth has just declared her allegiance to the God of Israel, to, to the Lord. Right? For lack of better words, she has converted. From this point on, she considers herself an Israelite who worships and who is accountable to the one true God. And so we aren't, we aren't told how, particularly in light of how poorly Elimelech's family seems to have represented their faith so far in the story, but something has happened in Ruth's heart that has led her to embrace the Lord as her God. And now her faith is leading her to Bethlehem. And how refreshing. Right? In a story that so far has been characterized by people making decisions that may make sense physically, but that are spiritually disastrous, it's good to see someone who's finally making a decision that may appear to be foolish physically, but that is wise spiritually. And the only irony is that the, the one person who is trusting in the Lord with their own heart and not leaning on their own understanding isn't an Israelite, it's a Moabite of all people. But nevertheless, at the end of the paragraph, we see that when Naomi realizes that Ruth is not going to leave, she accepts it, and she continues on. And as we pick up one last time in verse 19, the pair arrive in Bethlehem. So we'll pick up one last time beginning in verse 19. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, Is this Naomi? And she said to them, Do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? And so Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. And so as Naomi and Ruth arrive in Bethlehem, the whole town is stirred up to, to see them coming in. It's been a number of years since anyone has seen Naomi. A lot has changed during that time. And so it, it's quite possible that they don't actually know for sure whether it's her or not. And in verse 20, Naomi answers the question for them. She says, no, I'm not Naomi. I'm not the same person that you used to know. 
And the name Naomi means pleasant, but in her eyes, that no longer serves as a, a true description of who she is. And so instead, Naomi tells the women to call her Mara, which is a word that means bitter. And she explains to them everything that has happened and how the Lord has taken her husband and sons away from her and left her empty and bitter in life. So Naomi has returned to Bethlehem along with Ruth. And we see at the end of verse 22 that they arrive just in time for the beginning of the barley harvest. Would Actually would be right about now. The harvest takes place from the end of April into the first part of May. So in other words, they get there just in time for the food to be ready, which is a a hopeful hint that going forward, things are going to make a change for the better. We'll see that as we pick up again next week. And so as we begin the story of Ruth, we're off to a pretty rough start. After a a number of questionable decisions in in a difficult situation, Naomi has lost her husband and her sons. She has come back back home to Bethlehem empty, and bitter at the Lord for what her life has become. You know, I think that one of the things that makes Ruth such a good story is that it's easy for us to relate to it on some level. There are are a lot of stories in the Bible that because they are so ancient or because they're so culturally different from our lives today, they may be really interesting, but we don't necessarily relate to them in our personal lives the way that we can with Ruth. Now, the fact is that all of us have, have, have come to a point in life where things did not work out the way we wanted them to. The, the plans that we have fall through. We have to deal with the effects of sickness or disability. We lose people that we love. We suffer financial difficulty. Any number of things that can take place. And In those times, uh, it's tempting to question what God is doing. Why is this happening? What is God up to in this situation? And in those times, we may be tempted to think that God is against us. Or at the very least, that he's not paying very close attention to what's happening to us. Perhaps uh, you're there right now. Perhaps you can relate to Naomi and feeling bitter about the things that you've experienced in your life thinking that God has has given you a raw deal. Well, the thing to keep in mind here in chapter 1 is the fact that this is only chapter 1. This is not the end of the story. There is much more to come. And the same thing is true for us and the difficulties that we face in our lives. The reality is that, that all of the struggles we face, the suffering we experience, the disappointments that we endure in life, are all a part of God working out his perfect plans throughout human history. Of course, the catch is that we don't see that in the here and now, right? All we can see is what's happening right here, right now, and and we know that we either like it or we don't like it. And so that's the challenge of, of believing this truth. Naomi certainly doesn't see that here. All she knows is that her life is bitter, and she has no idea. She acknowledges, on the one hand, God's hand in everything that has happened, but she has no way of knowing that the heartbreaking experiences of chapter 1 in this story are actually setting the stage for God's greatest act of salvation in all of history. 
In the same way, we can never see the bigger picture of what God is doing in our own stories. If we could talk to Naomi, if we could enter this story, we would want to tell her, just hang on. The story isn't over yet. Trust the process. But the reality is that often we need to tell ourselves that. As a church family, we need to encourage one another with that truth. Like Naomi, we all experience suffering in life, but unlike Naomi, we have a great advantage in being able to read this story in 2021. Dr. D.A. Carson writes, in the darkest night of the soul, Christians have something to hold on to that Naomi never knew. We know Christ crucified. You see, we have an advantage in our lives on this side of salvation history that Naomi couldn't even begin to conceive of. We know the reality about who Jesus is and what he has done for us. We know that God sent Jesus to live a perfect life and that he came and died on a cross as a, as a substitute, as a sacrifice for our sin, taking the punishment that we deserve to receive for our sin for us so that we can be forgiven and reconciled to him. And to receive this salvation, we're called to repent of our sin and to place all of our hope in Jesus. This is, this is God's greatest demonstration of his love for us. Because of what Jesus did for us on the cross, we know that God loves us, because otherwise he would not have done that. And so, for those who respond to the gospel in faith, the Bible declares that God is for us, not against us. He is working out all things, the good, the bad, and the ugly, for our ultimate well-being, and that in time, we will see that. So wherever we are and whatever we're dealing with, we can always look back to the cross and know without doubt that God loves us. We can know that he is using our experience to bring about his perfect plan. And until the time that we see that, we can testify, as we sang this morning, that he will hold me fast. For my Savior loves me so, he will hold me fast. And so when we come into suffering or difficulty in life, hang on. Hang on. For those who are in Christ, this is not the end of the story, and there will yet be a happy ending. Let's pray together.